Last week, in examining the apparent challenges which evolutionary biology offers to the traditional doctrine of creation, I argued that if we recognize with Thomas that creation is a subject for metaphysics and theology and not for the natural sciences, we can begin to disentangle much of the confusion in contemporary discourse about the relationship between evolution and creation. Uh, the quotation on your handout, uh, the natural sciences have as their subject the world of changing things, precisely as changing things. Whether the changes are biological or cosmological, unending or temporally finite, they remain processes. God's creative act, however, is not a change. Thus, in principle, no claim in the natural sciences challenges the fundamental metaphysical fact that God is the complete cause of the existence of whatever is. To cause existence is not to produce a change in something. Creation out of nothing does not mean that God changes nothing into something. Rather, it means that were a creature to be separated from its creator, it would be absolutely nothing. But to know that creation is a category of analysis and metaphysics, and that the natural sciences, given that they explain change, tell us nothing about whether or not the universe is created, is only the beginning of what we must examine in order to see how Thomas understands the relationship between creation and the natural sciences. Part of the confusion about evolution and creation, the notion, for example, of a fundamental incompatibility between the two, is the result of a broader intellectual framework in which most analyses occur. It's a framework that is captured in the title of my presentation this evening, Creation and a Self-Sufficient Universe. The great advances made by modern science have led some thinkers to argue that science is the only source of truth, that the universe is completely self-sufficient. Often scientific developments have been used to support a kind of totalizing naturalism, according to which the universe and the processes within it need no explanation beyond the categories of the natural sciences. This is a point made with particular clarity by the French Dominican Jean-Michel Maldemey. I cited this text last week, but I want to repeat it in this lecture. Number one on the screen. Nature is understood as self-creating, this term connoting that the classic notion of creation has become useless. Nature, and it's proper to write this word with a capital letter, is self-sufficient to produce not only its effects, but to produce itself. The notion of creation disappears in this perspective of reflection. This view of nature as completely self-sufficient supports the further philosophical claim 
that existence is a brute fact, which does not call for any explanation beyond itself. Thus, only the emergence of new things from already existing realities or their going out of existence or other varieties of change need to be explained. What does not need to be explained, so this position contends, is the mere existence of that which changes. The argument is that the natural sciences are fully sufficient, at least in principle, to account for all that needs to be accounted for in the universe. Whether we speak of purported explanations of the Big Bang itself, such as quantum tunneling from nothing, or of some version of a multiverse hypothesis, or of self-organizing principles in biological change, including at times appeals to randomness and chance as ultimate explanations, the conclusion which seems inescapable to many is that there is no need to appeal to a creator, that is to any cause that is outside the natural order. Number two on the screen, Stuart Kaufman, famous <coughs> at the, he's at the Santa Fe Institute. Stuart Kaufman, famous for his work on information systems and biocomplexity, argues that we are reinventing the sacred as a result of a new view of science. This new view involves a rejection of reductionism and an affirmation of the emergent properties of a dynamic universe of ceaseless creativity. As he observes, life has emerged in the universe without requiring special intervention from a creator God. All I claim arose without a creator God. Is not this view a view based on an expanded science, God enough? Is not nature itself creativity enough? What more do we really need of God? Pope Benedict XVI frequently noted that there continues to be attempts from the time of the Enlightenment to the present day to find in the natural sciences an explanation of the world in which God would be unnecessary. In a lecture in 1999 at the University of Paris, the then Cardinal Ratzinger observed, this is quotation number three, the theory of evolution has increasingly emerged as the way to make metaphysics disappear, to make the so-called hypothesis of God superfluous, and to formulate a strictly scientific explanation of the world. A comprehensive theory of evolution intended to explain the whole of reality has become a kind of first philosophy, which represents, as it were, the true foundation for an enlightened understanding of the world. Any attempt to involve any basic elements other than those worked out within the terms of such a positive theory, any attempt at metaphysics necessarily appears as a regression from enlightenment, as abandoning the universal claims of science. Thus, the Christian idea of God is necessarily regarded as unscientific. As I've suggested, the universe described by contemporary science is often viewed as a self-contained universe, exhaustively understood in terms of the principles and laws of science. 
In such a universe, there would seem to be little of any need for the God of Jewish, Christian, or Muslim revelation. The traditional doctrine of creation appears obsolete in the face of the recent advances of science. The role of a creator has, so it seems, been rendered superfluous. A creator represents, at best, an intellectual artifact from a less enlightened age. For those interested in a sophisticated account of the doctrine of creation and its history, I can recommend, and this is number four on your handout, Paul Clavier's volume, Ex Nihilo, which describes the origin, development, and disappearance, at least in philosophy, of the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Indeed, he writes that the idea of the creation of the world has been relegated to the cemetery of metaphysical hypotheses. One of the principal purposes of my lectures here is to help to resurrect the doctrine of creation from that cemetery. Number five, in contemporary biology, there have been important discussions about understanding living things in terms of self-organization, or according to a theory of autopoiesis, a kind of self-making proposed initially by two Chilean biologists, Umberto Maturana and the late Francisco Varela. You see, as reductionism and mechanism are being replaced by, at least in biology, by appeals to dynamic, intrinsic organizing principles, the conclusion often reached is that changes in nature are exhaustively based on principles and entities in the natural world, and there is no need for any external interference to explain the change. Previously, when nature was conceived in exclusively inert and mechanistic terms, there were appeals to a source of activity beyond nature, although such appeals would often never be more than the affirmation of a kind of deism, to see God as only getting things started, so to speak, even though there may be at times when he has to tinker with the mechanisms he has produced. Furthermore, as I've already indicated, for many thinkers today, there is no category beyond change and the particular behavior of individual things that requires an explanation. We need to distinguish between the specific claims that evolutionary biology makes about the development and diversity of living things explanations that are properly in the domain of the natural sciences, and philosophical claims concerning whether or not additional explanations of these realities are necessary. An important point here is that to defend the competence of the natural sciences to describe what happens in nature ought not to be equated with a denial of creation. Although many contemporary theologians see the poverty of arguments that absolutize the natural order, some of these theologians tend to think that the challenges of science require us to reformulate what it means for God 
to create. The extent to which biologists, when they speak about self-organization, move beyond the domain of biology to make broad claims about self-creation, and that accordingly there is no need to appeal to a source of existence of living things, is the extent to which their claims are broadly metaphysical. An important feature of these philosophical claims, namely that self-creation, that the self-creation and self-sufficiency evident in the natural order eliminate the need to appeal to God, these claims involve conceptions of God and creation, which even if shared by some believers, are really not the same as those found in traditional philosophy and theology when they discuss creation. <clears throat> Number six, for many, there seem to be only four general philosophical and theological responses to developments in evolutionary biology. One, reject any reference to God as creator in order to defend the autonomy and integrity of nature. Two, deny conclusions in biology in defense of a creationist reading of scripture, according to which, for example, God directly creates each new species. Three, find some incompleteness in contemporary biology's account of the origin and development of living beings which calls for some new approach. For example, an intelligent designer, or what is more promising, Thomas Nagel's point that there are features of the cosmos, such as mind, that require us to challenge neo-Darwinian materialism. Or four, argue for a radical change in what it means for God to create, or even of what it means to be God. Examples include process theology and process philosophy and theology and panentheism. None of these alternatives will be defended here, with the exception of a feature of Thomas Nagel's analysis, namely his criticism of neo-Darwinian materialism. So this evening, I want to continue to argue for a Thomistic analysis of creation and the relative self-sufficiency of nature against both the new atheism, which sees it's either God or Darwin, uh, creator or evolution, against both that view and also against the various theological and philosophical attempts to alter fundamentally what we mean by God as creator. Creatures are what they are including those which are free, precisely because God is present to them as cause, as cause. Were God to withdraw, all that exists would cease to be. Creaturely agency and the integrity of nature in general are guaranteed by God's creative causality. Here is how Thomas expresses this view in the Summa Theologiae. This is number seven. Some have understood God to work in every agent in such a way that no created power has any effective things, but that God alone is the ultimate cause of everything wrought. 
for instance, that it's not fire that gives heat, but God in the fire and so forth. But this is impossible. First, because the order of cause and effect would be taken away from created things. And this would imply lack of power in the creator. For it is due to the power of the cause that it bestows active power on its effect. Secondly, because the active powers which are seen to exist in things would be bestowed on things to no purpose if these, were, if these wrought nothing through them. Indeed, all things created would seem in a way to be purposeless if they lacked an operation proper to them, since the purpose of everything is its, op is its operation. We must therefore understand that God works in things in such a manner that things have their proper operation. God is so powerful that his causal agency also produces the modality of its effect. The effect is assimilated to God's will in every way so that not only what happens occurs because God wills it, but it happens in that way which God wills it to happen. God's will transcends and constitutes the whole hierarchy of created causes, both causes which always and necessarily produce their effects and causes which at times fail to produce their effects. We can say, for example, that God causes chance events to be chance events. The role of chance mutations at the genetic level, so important in current evolutionary theory, does not call into question God's creative act. Number eight on the, on the screen, the International Theological Commission of the Catholic Church, when discussing this theme, noted that Quote, according to the Catholic understanding of divine causality, true contingency in the created order is not incompatible with a purposeful divine providence. Divine causality and created causality radically differ in kind and not only in degree. Thus, even the outcome of a truly contingent natural process can nonetheless fall within God's providential plan for creation. So I want to go back to, uh, to this divine causality and created causality radically differ in kind and not only in degree. God is not more powerful. Huh? Uh, he's, in a certain sense, as we'll talk about, other powerful. So God isn't a super agent greater only in degree from the created agents. Thomas writes, and support of this position, quote, number nine, God's will is thought to be, is, is, is to be thought of as existing outside the realm of existence, as a cause from which pours forth everything that exists in all its variant forms. Now, what can be and must be are variants of being, so that it is from God's will itself that things derive whether they must be or may or may not be 
and the distinction of the two according to the nature of their immediate causes. For he prepares causes that must be for those effects that he wills must be, and causes that might cause but might fail to cause for those effects that he wills might or might not be. And it is because of the nature of these causes that these effects are said to be effects that must be and those effects that need not to be. Although all depend upon God's will as primary cause, a cause which transcends the distinction between must and might not. So of every other cause other than God, it must be said either that it can fail to cause or that its effect must be and cannot not be. God's will, however, cannot fail. And yet not all his effects must be, but some can be or not be. In a section of the Summa Contra Gentiles on divine providence, Thomas notes that God's providential agency does not exclude secondary causes, but rather is fulfilled by them insofar as these causes act by God's power. Or, as Thomas claims, it would be contrary to the essential character of divine providence if all things occurred by necessity. Indeed, it would be contrary to the meaning of providence and to the perfection of things if there were no chance events. I'll read that again. Thomas says, it would be contrary to the meaning of providence and to the perfection of things if there were no chance events. Now, in next week's lecture, I'm going to return to discuss how Thomas understands divine providence and how such an understanding is consistent with the discoveries of the contemporary sciences. For Thomas, a crucial question was, <clears throat> given that God creates, and as such is the cause of all that is, given that, what can we say about the competence of the natural sciences as a source of knowledge of nature? Often the question today is, given the competence of the natural sciences, what can we say about God as creator? The two approaches concern fundamentally the same topic, the relationship between God as cause and creatures as causes. Thomas, the theologian, is starting with the fact that God is cause. How can there be causes in nature? Contemporary, many contemporary philosophers and scientists start with the fact that there are causes in nature. How can there be an, an omnipotent God who is the cause of all? We began to talk about this a little last week. God is the cause of being as such, and to cause being as such is precisely what it means to create. God's causation does not compete with the causation of creatures, but rather supports and grounds the causation of creatures. Since it is characteristic of the causes in nature precisely to be causes, God's causal determination of them is not such as to deny their proper autonomy. God as primary cause is not at the summit of a chain of causes, 
God is a kind of ultimate or foundational cause of all that is. In a passage from his commentary on the book of, cause, of causes, Thomas makes this point clearly, even if the language is dense. And this is quotation number 10. The first cause is above being insofar as it is infinite to be. Being, however, is called that which finitely participates to be. And it is this participated being, created things, it is this participated being which is proportioned to our intellect, whose object is some that which is, some particular thing. Hence, our intellect can grasp only that which has a quiddity, a whatness, a quiddity participating to be. But the quiddity of God is to be itself. Thus, it is the quiddity, the essence of God, is above intellect. Now, as we began to see last week, God is radically other than all other things. Indeed, even to speak of God's being other risks the danger of placing God and creatures on some continuum of existence. In God, essence and existence are identical. Quotation 10 is supporting that view. In every creature, what it means for the thing to be and that it be, essence and existence, are distinct. As Thomas writes, quotation 11, God alone is being by virtue of his own essence, since his essence is his existence. Whereas every creature has being by participation, so that its essence is not its existence. God is not an entity among other entities. Contrary to the view of some contemporary theologians, God does not need a metaphysical indeterminacy in nature so that his actions would not collide, so to speak, with other causes. The attraction of quantum indeterminacy is especially evident in this regard. If, as the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics suggests, there is no causal determination of events at the quantum level. We might have found the place in which, God's act, in which God acts and yet does not interfere with natural causes. Since, according to the quantum, the Copenhagen interpretation, there are no natural causes to be interfered with. My point here is that there are some theologians who think that to defend the notion of God's action, we have to have a kind of metaphysical indeterminism somewhere in nature so that God's action doesn't compete with, doesn't collide, doesn't challenge other causal actions. So that if there really is quantum indeterminacy, and, that, and if that means no causal determination, aha, then we have found the place for God to act in nature. <coughs> uh, my point is that such a view such an attempt to reinterpret God's actions, still fails to understand well what the traditional meaning of creation is. Number 12 on the handout, I mean on the screen. Often commentators fail to recognize 
that to speak of God as cause is to use the term cause in an analogical sense. Such a recognition of analogical predication applies not only to the causality of creatures, inanimate and animate, other than human beings, but also to the causality of free creatures. This whole topic of analogical predication is a huge one in understanding what we say about God. Huh? Uh, and perhaps we, we talked a little bit about this last week. God is not part of the causal change it chains in the world. God is not to be conceived of as a cause in some categorical sense. God does not belong to any categories precisely because he is the cause of them all. In a sense, of course, of course, for Thomas, ultimately, we do not really know what fully it means for God to be cause, as is also the case with any characterization we predicate of God. The question of how properly to speak of God as transcendent cause is a topic to which I'm going to return in next week's lecture. Notice how Thomas's analysis of creation, so understood as I've been putting it forth, I hope, does not challenge what evolutionary theories describe as the source of order and design in nature in terms of the natural selection of organisms subject to the vagaries of genetic mutation, environmental challenge, and past history. However revolutionary evolution by natural selection is in our understanding processes in nature, it does not, natural selection does not call into question the truth of a Thomistic metaphysical and theological understanding of creation. At least there is no incompatibility unless one erroneously thinks that to cause order or design is the root sense of what it means to be create, what it means to create, or concludes that there is no need to seek an ultimate explanation of natural processes themselves. If you hold those views, then we have some problems. It seems that since modern science, especially evolutionary theory, discloses a fundamental contingency in nature, the classical conception of God inconsistent with nature so understood, must be jettisoned. So at least is the argument of many contemporary theologians who think that in rejecting classical theism, they are honoring the insights of science. Some argue, in addition, that the view of God in time, changing as the world and man change, neither omniscient nor omnipotent in the classical sense, that such a view of God is far more consistent with the core biblical revelation, more consistent with that biblical revelation than the God described by Thomas Aquinas and others. This is also an argument advanced by some theologians who defend this changed view of God. John Hort is a good example, whom I mentioned last week. He thinks that as a result of evolutionary biology, we can no longer be satisfied with the traditional metaphysics of being, which embraces a kind of static universe, but must move to what he calls a metaphysics of becoming in keeping with the dynamics of change in an evolving universe. 
as I've been arguing last week and tonight, Thomas's analysis of God as cause of all that is, that analysis is immune to the criticism of those who call for a new vision of God consistent with the contingent world described by contemporary science. Remember, for Thomas, the notion of cause is predicated of God in an, in an analogical sense, such that it is radically different from all other uses of the term. Nor is God a super entity among other entities. The incoherence which critics find in Thomas's approach to God as creator is the result in part of not recognizing the profound understanding Thomas has of the ways in which terms are predicated of God and of not seeing clearly the distinction he draw, the distinctions he draws between metaphysics on the one hand and natural philosophy and the sciences on the other, especially his understanding that creation is a subject for metaphysics and theology, it's not a subject for the natural sciences. The problem which those who defend the self-sufficiency in nature and its processes often see is that any appeal to a cause outside of nature is either superfluous or contradictory to the very claim that nature is the arena of self-organizing activities. There's confusion here, however, about different orders or levels of explanation. If we ask, for example, why wood is heated in the presence of fire, we can explain the phenomenon in terms of the characteristics of both wood and fire. Thomas remarks that if a person answers the question of why wood is heated by saying that God wills it, the person answers appropriately provided he intends to take the question back to a first cause, but not appropriately if the person needs to exclude all other causes. Number 13, for Thomas, there is no question that there are real causes in the natural order. If effects are not produced by the action of created things, but only by the action of God, it is impossible for the power of any created cause to be manifested through its effects. If no created things really produced effects, then no nature of anything would ever be known through its effect, and thus all the knowledge of natural science is taken away from us. Thomas thinks that to defend the fact that creatures are real causes Far from challenging divine omnipotence is a powerful argument for divine omnipotence. As he says, to deny the power of creatures to be causes of things is to detract from the perfection of creatures and thus to detract from the perfection of divine power. For Thomas, God is immediately active in all things. And in an important sense, God is more intimate to each creature than a creature is to itself. God, as the cause of each creature's being, is present at the very center of each creature's being. He is more interior to things <clears throat> than they are to themselves. 
not as an intrinsic principle entering into their constitution, but as the abiding cause of their existence. <clears throat> the fact that things exist and act in their own right is the most telling indication that God is existing and acting in them. Thomas shows us how to distinguish between the being or existence of creatures and the operations they perform. God causes creatures to exist in such a way that they are the real causes of their own operations. For Thomas, God is at work in every operation of nature, but the autonomy of nature is not an indication of some reduction in God's power or activity. Rather, the autonomy of nature is an indication of God's goodness. It's important to recognize that for Thomas, divine causality and creaturely causality function at fundamentally different levels. Number 14, in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas remarks that the same effect, you're being present on this Zoom meeting, huh? The same effect is not attributed to a natural cause and to divine power in such a way that it is partly done by God and partly by the natural agent. Rather, it is wholly done by both, according to a different way. It is not the case of partial or co-causes with each contributing a separate element to produce the effect. God as creator transcends the order of created causes in such a way that he is their enabling origin. For Thomas, the differing metaphysical, the, the differing uh, metaphysical levels of primary and secondary causation require us to say that any created effect comes totally and immediately from God as the transcendent primary cause and totally and immediately from the creature as secondary cause. In response to the objection that it is superfluous for effects to flow from natural causes, since they could just as well be directly caused by God alone, Thomas writes that the existence of real secondary causes is not the result of the inadequacy of divine power, but of the immensity of God's goodness. God wills to, commu God wills to communicate his likeness to, be, to things, not only that they might exist, but also that they might be causes for other things. Or number 15 on the screen. To ascribe to God as first cause, all causal agency eliminates the order of the universe, which is woven together through the order and connection of causes. For the first cause lends from the eminence of its goodness, not only to other things that they are, but also that they are causes. Of the four places in which Thomas discusses creation in a magisterial way, his treatise on the power of God offers one of the most extensive and detailed accounts. The question being considered in the passage I'm going to cite is whether God works in the operations of nature. And Thomas concludes, this is 16, 
Therefore, God is the cause of everything's action, inasmuch as he gives everything the power to act, and preserves it in being, and applies it to action, and inasmuch as by his power every other power acts. And if we add to this that God is his own power, and that he is in all things, not as part of their essence, but as upholding them in their being, we shall conclude that he acts in every agent immediately, without prejudice to the action of the will in volitional creatures, and of nature, that is, those causes discovered by evolutionary biology and the other sciences. Now here I want to probe more deeply into how everything that exists depends completely upon God as cause, yet what is caused has its own proper stability of being, of its own nature that is left completely to itself. The creature is non-being rather than being, and it must be caused by God continuously, lest it return to the non-being which it properly is. It is true to say that the creature is literally nothing without the creative causality of God. Nevertheless, we must remember that the being of creatures, far from being an accident or a characteristic of things, the being of creatures is the ultimate perfection or actuality of the creature. Most profoundly in the depths of any creature is its being. A creature is nothing so much as its own being. Thus, the creature thus, far from being an insubstantial quasi-nothing, is a real something existing in a sense on its own. In giving being to the creature, God does not merely make the creature to be an extension of himself. Rather, he gives the creature an inherent stability in being, a tendency to exist. God gives being in such a way that the tendency of the given being is not to lapse into non-being, but precisely to remain in being. God does not only give being to things when they first begin to exist. He also causes being in them so long as they exist. He not only causes the operative powers to exist in things when, those, when these things come into being, he always causes these powers in things. Thus, if God's creative act were to cease, every operation would cease. Every operation of a thing has God as its ultimate cause. Number 17, Thomas says, for the being of every creature depends on God, so that not for a moment could it subsist, but would fall into nothingness were it not being kept in being by the operation of the divine power. Number 18, as we have seen, Thomas does not think that such an affirmation of divine omnipotence eliminates the role of real created causes. The self-sufficiency of nature, the dynamism of natural processes which nature science discovers, does not mean that God is superfluous, since he is the cause of nature itself. He is a cause in such a way that nature has its own integrity, its own self-organizing principles. Nor must God withdraw, so to speak, in order for there to be such intrinsic 
dynamism and novelty in nature. God is the underlying source of evolutionary processes and of whatever order and design that result from these processes. Thomas's emphasis on the ongoing character of God's creative act and that God is the source of the dynamic principles and potentialities found in nature resonates with what evolutionary sciences disclose. The evolutionary, emergent, and unfinished character of the created order revealed by the sciences serves to emphasize the continuing character of God's action. <clears throat> Next week, we will examine some underlying assumptions <clears throat> that inform Thomas's analysis of creation and the relation between God's creative act and the causality of creatures. In particular, we will see how, the, how impoverished notions of what it means to be a cause and a defective understanding of divine transcendence lead us away from a Thomistic analysis. In the process, we will examine how Thomas can affirm a view of God as providential, a God whose will is never frustrated in the context of an evolving universe of contingency and chance, not to mention a universe in which there is human freedom. So even if your coming here next week is a chance event, it will fall completely under divine providence, and yet it will remain a chance event. Thank you very much.